What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Lenora Clare is a survivor, advocate, producer, private investigator, and consultant from Los Angeles, California. Her career in entertainment and the arts began to skyrocket in the early 2000s, but were largely derailed when she began to face stalking at the hands of a perpetrator that also stalks several celebrities. Her experiences in the legal system, within the media, and in helping other survivors since, have propelled her to redefine herself several times over. As a result, she serves the survivor community deeply in many different ways, no matter what continues to come next in her journey. And we are so honored that she is sharing a portion of it all with us today. Hi, my name is Lenora Clare. I am a multi-violent crime survivor. I'm an advocate, I'm an activist. I'm a founding member of the Los Angeles District Attorney Crime Victims Advisory Board, where I advise on issues of gender-based violence. I'm the founder of Lenora Claire Consulting, which is a hybrid firm, which sort of puts together my lifetime career of working in the entertainment industry, as well as advocating for survivors. We work to create ethical, responsible productions for survivors who are coming forward and telling their stories in the media. I am a recent graduate of the FBI Citizens Academy. I am a partner in a new PI firm called Special K Investigations. We're a specialized firm focusing on stalking and missing persons cases. And I'm a proud dog mom. Hopefully one day I get to make my documentary and I get to fully tell the story. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I was raised primarily by my father. We were best friends. I was very much his mini-me. He was a real character. When I was a child, he was a urologist who later became a psychiatrist, and his specialty was sex therapy. Back when he was a urologist in the 70s, he helped really pioneer what we now call gender affirmation surgeries. I grew up with queer neighbors on both sides. So I grew up maybe a little differently than most people in a really loving, kind, open, forward-thinking household. I was in a highly gifted magnet growing up. The reason why I bring it up was that we were all really smart, quirky, weird children, and I was not aware of how weird I was in this environment. I wasn't bullied at all. I was a very bizarre kid. I didn't know it. I grew up in an environment that really fostered that. If I'm being really honest, my father had a disease where he knew he was going to die young. 
So he really taught us to cram as much life in there as you can and celebrate every day. When I was seven, my dad spent the entirety of 1987 and 1988 at Cedar sinai as a patient, not as a doctor. And I think that really informs your life. At one point, he was pronounced clinically dead for five minutes, and he came back. I think that definitely influences a person to go, life is so fragile, and we don't know how much time we have make the most of everything. That's always been with me since I was really young. Interestingly, my father, he was also a police surgeon in New York before we moved to LA. He was a surgeon who had the specialized training. So if something was to happen on scene, he would show up. He did a lot of forensics. I actually grew up with him doing that kind of work within the home and bringing home cases. He didn't know this, but I would look at them when he was asleep. I think there was always an interest I didn't know that I would become a multi-crime survivor myself or work with people, but weirdly, these sort of things were already in my home. I graduated high school. I was 15 and a half. I got my start in entertainment. Because I had my diploma, I was able to work on set. That was super valuable because they didn't have to have a tutor for me. So I started working on camera in Hollywood. As a teenager, I moved out at 16 years old, got a rock star boyfriend when I was 19, moved to London. That's a whole story. Did that for a while, came back to the US and started working in art and entertainment. Life was fun. Life was amazing. I got a billboard in Times Square for an ad campaign for USA Network. And suddenly I'm being flown out by Vanity Fair for this whole thing. I hosted nightclubs. I had huge gallery shows. I was a curator. I had my own gallery at one point. Did a show with World of Wonder, who people might know from RuPaul's Drag Race. I did a show called Golden Girls Gone Wild, which was fun, erotic depictions of the Golden Girls. It was one of the first stories on TMZ. And 2,000 people came opening night. I did a show when Betty Page passed with her estate. That was really fun. I was living my best life. I had the best designers in LA making me clothes. In 2011, LA Weekly made me one of the people of the year. Their words, not mine. LA's hottest it girl. I think the title of the article was P.T. Barnum with boobs. You wouldn't say that now, right? But that was a very 2011 way to say things. That was very of that moment. If you take my two biggest media titles, it went from 2011's P.T. Barnum with Boobs to 2017 Vice's Aaron Brockovich of Stalking. As I mentioned, the LA Weekly article where I was one of the people of the year, which that's such a cool honor, right? That actually is what got the attention of my stalker. Here I am celebrating my successful gallery and the media that came with it and all the good times. Little did I know that there was a very unwell individual who had already been stalking Ivanka Trump out in New York. I don't know Ivanka, I don't know anything about this at the time. He'd been arrested multiple times for stalking her and for trying to kill himself in her store because he is a dangerous person. I always have to say that I'm not stigmatizing the mentally ill. I wanna be very clear about that. But we do have to mention that he is very unwell, my stalker. His real name, he had it legally changed to Cloud Star Chaser. He had been arrested for stalking Ivanka, and then he jumped bail, came to L.A., and he opened up the L.A. Weekly, saw my photo, became fixated on me, and came to my gallery. And that's how it all began. He comes to my gallery, and he's wearing a spacesuit which to most people might be the first hint that he's unhinged, but I'm used to dealing with fun art characters. So I engage with him, we have a conversation. I could tell he's really intelligent, but strange. 
And he kind of looks at me and he goes, you look like Jessica Rabbit and you look like Lilu from The Fifth Element. And he looks me right in the eye and he goes, I'm gonna stalk you. It was just so chilling and weird. I kicked him out of the gallery. And I didn't think much of it until I start getting all these texts from my friends going, oh my God, girl, look at this. The Trumps had hired bounty hunters for his crimes towards Ivanka. And that's when he started sending me from Rikers Island these long ramblings. And then it very rapidly escalated into incredibly graphic rape, death, and kidnapping threats. At this point, they were letters sent to my gallery. I took them to LAPD. This person is somebody who has a long criminal history, so I thought they'd take me seriously. And I have this huge stack of these death threats, LAPD. They looked at me and they said, well, why don't you dye your hair, which is bright red, and get off the internet? That was what they offered me. And it really pissed me off. He had gotten out of jail. So then it started to turn into email death and rape threats. At that point, because they were unwilling to help me, that's when I started to have to learn those techniques. I started to learn how to track IP to know where he was. If he was out of state, I could breathe that day. If he was in California, I was terrified. At that point, I closed my gallery. That's something people don't realize with stalking in particular. It's the impact in all these areas, whether it's your personal life, your career, your financial. My dad died in 2013 and my stalking started in 2011. The last two years of my dad's life, he was really, really sick. I wanted to tell him so badly. And I told my dad everything. Things he'd be like, really? You talked to your dad about that? Yes, we did. But I did not want my dad's last thoughts to be about me in danger. So I didn't tell him what was going on and I didn't get his advice. I always have to sit with that. Even my dad's death is somehow tainted by this awful individual and what they've done to me. It's always going to be a devastating loss, but I really think of him daily try to honor him daily and just make the world a better place the way that I know that he would have wanted. I was getting so many death threats. I couldn't have a public facing business anymore because my stalker stalked so many celebrities. It was in the media, whether I wanted it to be or not. They would go through the court filings. And so they would see the names like Kim Kardashian and Gwyneth Paltrow, Ivanka Trump. So my case was reported on without my consent anyway. It was always going to be a media story. And once I realized that I was like, okay, I've worked in entertainment my whole life. I'm poised for this. I can be a voice for people. Because typically, the face of this crime is somebody who maybe they're a mother who's being stalked by their ex-partner and they have children and they can't come public in this way. Because I was never going to have privacy with my case and because I'm well-suited for these things, that pushed me into taking it public. Not to mention, I was getting absolutely no assistance from law enforcement and I did not want to die. That's when I went public for the first time in 2015. So I went public with this prior to Me Too, when the culture was even worse. I started doing media, and at that point, people were pretty terrible to me. They would somehow act like I was attention-seeking. So I really wasn't getting a lot of support. That's when I started working in reality TV casting. I was at an office. I was enjoying it, having a good time. And my stalker started sending death threats to my boss and mentor. I went back to LAPD and I was like, now my boss is getting death threats. We had the voicemails, a ton of evidence. They were terrible to me. And I went to go get a restraining order. They're like, you totally qualify, but how are you going to serve him? He bounces around the country. I started realizing that process and delivery of restraining order is a problem for a lot of people. My friend Polly Perrette from NCIS, she was friends with Congressman Adam Schiff. I started working with Adam Schiff before he was House Intelligence Committee Adam Schiff on proposals. 
That was the first thing that I started working on. My first proposal was, why can't I send you a restraining order through email? We have a lot of things like foreclosure notices that you can send in that manner. Why can't I do that? There's ways to see if a legal document's been opened. And then my stalking just got worse. The death threats, the rape threats, it was unbelievable. And I was getting absolutely no assistance. It was going on for years. He was stalking multiple people. Nobody was helping me. I want to clarify, when people say the stalking that you faced, it's not past tense, it's present, it's ongoing. Everyone goes, I'm so sorry that it happened to you. I wish it was a past tense. I'm also a survivor of sexual assault and domestic violence at different parts of my life. Even though I'm advocating so strongly for one thing, it's not that I'm not a multi-violent crime survivor, that I don't care about those crimes, or that I don't work with survivors of those crimes, because I do. It's just not as known. One of the biggest crime shows when they were doing my story, at that point, it was unadjudicated. It was very active, and I went on it for help. I was doing the show because I was so desperate. I didn't want to get murdered. Nobody was listening to me. They interviewed my stalker without my consent. And as a producer myself, I understand this might seem like an exciting choice. Not to mention it's complicated because it gave me incredible evidence. I have my stalker fully admitting to stalking me in very compelling footage. But the thing with a lot of these true crime productions, they're used to working with adjudicated cases or homicide. They're not used to dealing with living survivors who are currently in danger. So I don't think they realized how much this choice would impact me, my case, my life, my future, and my safety. My hardest thing as far as the media, finding out that producers, even when they're well-intentioned, they may make choices that are really not good for you. They take away your agency. Not the show that interviewed my stalker. There was another show about stalking with a producer who, even though he knew what happened to me on the show when they interviewed my stalker, he thought it was a great idea to knock on the door of the stalker in this other project that he did. And it was just a lot of times people think they're making choices that are great for the survivor. Like, just ask the survivor. Ask them what they need. You would think that that would be a thing, but it's not. Talk to us and we can help make decisions instead of just acting on our behalf because you may be causing us even more harm. That was a pretty awful experience. And that's ultimately what led me to creating my company. My case went to TMU, which is Threat Management Unit. They were created to do threat assessment, typically high profile cases, like when Madonna or Spielberg has a stalker, that's who handles it. Because my case was all over the media, my case went there. In my entire history, I think I've had 10 detectives, one good one. When he retired, he became a PI. And now full circle, I have the company with him. So that's amazing. My PI firm is Special K PI, not a nonprofit. It is a for-profit business. We are licensed in California, Nevada. And what we do is we do all the investigations and protection that you wish law enforcement would do. We go through your tech. We make sure everything's okay. We do a security assessment at your home. We basically package it so that we drop it off at the law enforcement entity and they could cross it over the finish line and take the credit. It's not for everybody, but it is a resource that is here for some people. Eventually, my hope is that we could do it on a sliding scale. We do stalking and missing persons and we can do anything. We're doing a lot of work, but one little niche people may not understand is that we're working with a lot of OnlyFans people. If you're on OnlyFans, especially if you're like top OnlyFans creator, 
you're hiring a team to talk to your fans. You're not really talking to them. So you may not know who your problem person is. We do the monitoring. We do the background checks. We can do a lot of things law enforcement can't and won't do to help protect people. We have access to a lot of things. So if you just have questions about restraining orders or stalking in general, feel free to reach out. And if I can help, I will. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on most social media under my name. People started coming to me. That's when I started doing restraining orders for people. I learned how to do them and do them well. So I started doing court support, going to court with people. Even though I was still very much in danger myself, I can help other people. So that's where the activism and advocacy component started for me. And to date, I stopped counting after I assisted with my 100th restraining order. Remember, restraining orders are to protect threats of physical violence. You really have to have that component. Also, the why now component is really important. I've actually had judges go, they've been doing this for seven years, but they haven't done anything violent. So you really need to have a why now component. I'll give an example of a why now. It's an ex-partner that's stalking you who is really jealous. You have a new partner and you know that that's going to exacerbate things. Another thing, sometimes people come to me and they're like, my ex is a terrible person. Yes, they are stalking them or there's a history of violence, but they'll be like, and they cheated on me 12 times. That's awful, but the judge doesn't care about that. And if you put that in, then the judge is going to think that it's a personal vendetta. It's really about the potential for violence and the potential for crime and the crimes that have been committed. Stay focused on that. If I didn't have the restraining order, I wouldn't have had my multiple convictions, including felonies. So it is a necessary tool. After I did the show, which was seen by 17 million people, that really seemed to exacerbate things. It also created some friction with law enforcement who did not like me coming forward in this manner, but I did it anyway. My sucker was talking Ivanka Trump, as I mentioned, and at one point he was arrested and put into a psych facility. So I thought I was going to be able to breathe. This was 2016. And then Trump wins. And I get this call about a week later from Secret Service, FBI and LAPD. And they said, we're calling to inform you that your stalker who you share with Ivanka, he escaped the psych facility that he was in mid-transfer. And we don't know where he is because it's now a Secret Service issue because Ivanka is now the first daughter. My thought was, now people are going to give a shit about my case. Sure enough, he was caught a block away from Trump Tower. I thought, okay, he's gonna get some real time. He didn't. Long story short, he goes to jail briefly in New York, and then he gets out. At this point, he is super fixated on me. He comes to Los Angeles, and I'm terrified. He starts threatening my now husband. He was my boyfriend at the time. Early in a relationship, your new boyfriend's getting death threats. He writes me, and he tells me he's going to kidnap me. And he tells me how and where. He said, I'm going to kidnap you from LA Comic-Con. He did not realize that I know the owners of LA Comic-Con, they're old friends. I want to say they did an amazing job. We hired extra security. We dressed them up as Batman and Superman to not scare the kids. And when my stalker came to kidnap me, they caught him and we hand-delivered him to LAPD. We were going to have my trial a year after the arrest but he was up for a million dollars bail. I was walking up the courthouse steps. I was ready to have my day in court. The stalking DDA comes out and is like, yeah, we took a plea. People never realize when there are these situations, there's only so much planning you can do because there's always something that's going to happen. He pleaded out to just the felony stalking, which in my opinion, it should have been multiple felonies. But 
four-year sentence because of Prop 57 automatically was reduced to two. It was cut in half. I like the DDA very much and I respect him. Ultimately, I could have fought him, but I think he wanted to spare me the trauma of a trial, which I understand. When they can plead, they do. And at this point, I had just gotten engaged. Do I take the gamble or do I take the guarantee? Because he never had a felony before. He'd only had a ton of misdemeanors. And I knew that getting the felony would change everything. When my stalker was released after serving the two years, surprise, surprise, he violated within three days. He was already stalking me again and making videos about me on YouTube. That's when I learned that the ankle monitor that he was made to wear by the court is a value after they've done something, then they can prove it. So that's when I started thinking, we have so much tech in our phone. And when you're dealing with stalking, there's such a tech component now. Tech is really scary for us because they get into our phones. They track us with GPS. They're in our social media. So I started thinking about a way to make technology work for us, which is geofencing. If I could have an app created that is put on a survivor's phone, we could use that with the GPS so that let's say your restraining order was a thousand feet. If I could get a warning on my phone is a thousand feet away, then I can actually do something in the moment to protect myself. So that's something that I've been advocating for. A few of the things I've been advocating for that have some traction, my friend Jess Gilbert and I, we have the Innovative Justice Alliance. It's the hybrid between advocacy and tech stuff. We've created a proposal for a stocking task force. Hopefully some momentum happens with that. Unfortunately, anything that costs something is difficult. I will say that I'm working with a very respected politician on some federal stocking laws because we had Supreme Court ruling called Counterman, which happened recently. Counterman was a stalker out in Colorado who was stalking a young female musician. He was convicted of stalking her, and he really thought that his right to send her threats and getting that taken away was a violation of his First Amendment rights. What do you know? Supreme Court agreed with him. So now the idea of what constitutes a threat and what's First Amendment, it's really dodgy. So even getting restraining orders is difficult for people. I have to say this. You can propose and pass legislation all day long. If people aren't coming forward because they don't trust the system or law enforcement is not believing them, which frequently happens, or law enforcement does not have the resources or the training to help them gather the evidence to move forward to even file charges. We're not even enforcing the laws that we currently have because of those things. So it's a multi-tier issue. On the law enforcement front, I'm working with a bunch of amazing survivors. We're going to be going to the White House in January for the 20th anniversary of Stopping Awareness Month, which was founded by Debbie Riddle when her sister was murdered. Stalking Awareness Month, our color is sparkle. The reason why we have sparkle is not just because every other good color was taken by every other cause, but the reason is sparkle is because so often you hear the individual that was killed or the individual that's being stalked, they have this amazing sparkling personality. They're so dynamic. It's because these stalkers, these predators, want to obtain, possess, and control. So they gravitate towards this charismatic, awesome person, and they want to obtain, possess, and control them. We recently gave some recommendations. One of my personal recommendations that I gave was to create resources for funding to give law enforcement tech training. For example, if they're in the GPS on our phone, we don't know how to prove that ourselves. We can't get that evidence. We need them to help us with that. Another thing I'd really love to see is forensic psych onboarded onto the different police departments because it's not even the police officer's fault. They don't have this training for risk assessment. One of the most amazing forensic psychologists in the country, 
is a friend of mine. And when he was looking over my threats, he pointed out that my stalker speaks about me as though I'm an object, not a person. He really depersonalizes me, which I guess is an indicator of violence because it's much easier to harm an object than a person. This is language that I didn't know. The cops don't know these things. So having trained forensic psychologists who can go over threats and make assessments and then red flag people, we really need to have people who are specialized in that, who can do that to get people the appropriate help they may need. I was very inspired by the intimacy coordination movement where there's scripted productions. Say someone's playing a sex assault survivor on a show. You have somebody to negotiate how they're handled on set and make sure everything feels kosher. I was like, that's amazing they're doing that unscripted because they have unions, protections, measures put in. But on unscripted, which is non-union, there's nobody looking after us. So if an actor portraying a sex assault survivor gets these considerations, why doesn't an actual sexual assault survivor, when they're telling their story in media, why don't they have someone looking out for them? My consulting company is LenoraClaireLLC.com. So if you're a true crime production, whether that's unscripted, podcast, or whatever that is, We have a broad spectrum of survivors, homicide detectives, prosecutors, forensic psychologists, homeland security people working with production, working with the survivor, making sure that they had psych evaluation, that they were even cleared and safe to speak on camera, that they had resources afterwards, therapy if needed, negotiating with producers. I created that role, but then very quickly I realized this is so much bigger than that. That's when I expanded on it to other experts, other survivors. You could hire forensic psychologists. We've also provided some experts at parole hearings, which is not something I thought we were going to do, but we did it this year. We work with scripted and unscripted. And even when we were shooting my sizzle reel, I hired Collier Landry as my DP because I want survivors everywhere. I worked with Jiminika, who you've had on as a guest, and we just did a really big survivor doc where we worked with the survivors. It was an amazing experience. They do things really differently in the UK. They have what's called duty of care. They don't have that in the US. Unfortunately, America is really behind when we're looking at what the UK is doing. Hopefully it catches up and at some point, maybe Unscripted will unionize and there'll be more people fighting for this stuff. I really learned about this with this British production I just worked on. For example, when I set on this production, before we have these survivors come forward, we should have them speak with a therapist. They're like, yeah, of course, we do that already. And I was like, I'm fighting for that here in the U.S. And it's just a given there in the U.K. I worked with the producers and the director to make sure the questions were appropriate. It was a wonderful experience. A lot of us crime survivors, we're all friends and peers. We sit and we have these conversations about the outrageous and egregious things that have happened to us. I don't think the public really is privy to a lot of that. It was just really beautiful to know that the things that we're all asking for here in the States, they're already working on doing in the UK. I will say this, when you make people feel comfortable and respected and safe, when everybody wants to be on set and wants to tell their story, you get a better interview. People don't realize a lot of times when crime survivors are telling their story, they've been coerced on some level. I've had producers say, listen, we're going to tell your story anyway. Don't you want to get ahead of it? We just have to do better by people. Even the title true crime is kind of a fallacy because the crimes that these shows about are not really reflecting what's really happening. If it was to really be true crime, you'd see a lot more BIPOC stories. You'd see a lot more sex worker stories. In true crime, true representation would be of the victim. The story is revolving around this crime 
So real representation in this realm would mean having the victim be involved in the production or not having the production at all. You're absolutely right. I'm so glad you touched on that. The first time I started looking at stats, and again, the underreporting is massive. Because there's so many homicide cases that have a stalking component where they don't charge the stalking, we don't even know how many homicides have a stalking component. In 2013, it was 7.5 million Americans, and it was 90% domestic violence, 10% stranger acquaintance. The new statistics we got this year, we're now up to 13.5 million Americans, and it's almost 50-50 with domestic violence and stranger acquaintance, which thank you, internet, that is obviously what has influenced that. 13.5 million. Well, that sounds like an epidemic to me. It's so real, so terrifying, and it's only getting worse. We live in this culture where we're telling people, promote yourself, be an influencer, do a podcast, but we're not telling people how to protect themselves. Enjoy those things, promote yourself, do what you love, but do it responsibly. I always say, you get in a car, you wear a seatbelt, you're going to have sex, you use a condom. There's just risk minimization that you can do. People always say to me, how do you live your life? I still live my life, but I put every protection in place. I'm never going to not be a danger. He was writing me letters from prison, but I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do all the things I can to protect myself. And I can show you how to do that too. People don't realize unless you wipe it, your home address is on the internet. It's so easy to get. I show people how to wipe their address. It may seem like common sense, but if we don't teach people, it's not common sense. I do it because I have to. I can't live in a world where I have this knowledge and I don't help people in this manner. There's a bunch of great nonprofits for DV I could send people to. There's Spark, who are amazing, who I'll be going to the White House with. What they do is through the Department of Justice, that's who funds them, they do education and trainings. You can't go to them and be like, I'm being stalked, help me. Spark is an amazing organization for education. They have a risk assessment tool where you can go to their website and they can tell you how much danger you're in. When I was appointed to the District Attorney Crime Victims Advisory Board, I realized that I was not given any social services because my stalking is not domestic violence. At that point, they did not have any stalking-specific Bureau of Victim Services coordinators. They only had domestic violence. And since I didn't fall under DV, nobody helped me. So I advocated and I was able to get Spark to come in through Tanisha Wright, who's amazing, who's head of the victim services here in Los Angeles. We did a training and then we got 15 stalking specific coordinators. So now if you're being stalked in California, you're entitled with the proper documentation to $5,000 of free therapy with any therapist of your choice. I know your listeners are all over the place, but we have California Victims Compensation and every state has their version of this. There's so much that happened in between. It started in 2011. We're now in 2023. I put him in jail six times. A lot has happened as far as the work that I do, the advocacy that I do, the activism where that's taken me, the individuals that I've assisted. They call me the Aaron Brockovich of stalking. It's really hard to live up to. I don't know if I could ever live up to that, but that's where that moniker came from. Thank you for all of that. I know you've got a lot on the horizon and you're doing so much for the victim community, but you're also doing so much actively for yourself to even try to stay safe. What do you do to take care of yourself? What are the tools and resources that you've found? I have a lot of health issues that I'm pretty sure come from the years of hypervigilance. It's taken a toll on me physically, as a lot of the victim survivors that I deal with. We all have stomach problems. I've definitely had to do a lot of work to be okay. And honestly, I'm not okay every day. I'm high functioning, but 
some days are better than others. I still have some really rough days where I look at the careers that have been taken from me. I was so good at dealing art. I loved it. It was so much fun. Having a public facing business is just never really going to be an option for me. So it's really taken a toll. I look at things and the sacrifices I've had to make to be safe, all the relationships that it's impacted, which is every relationship. You just pay this price in ways that you don't think. I have friends who their career has been taken from them and the financial impact. There's just so much. The thing is, you really don't feel safe until your person is dead. It's just this hypervigilance that we live with, which again, for me, has translated into a lot of health problems. I spent eight days in the hospital this year with my autoimmune disorder flaring up. I've had 11 little mini ulcers. At that point, it was 11 years. It's a lot. People just don't really think about the price that we pay. It's very heavy. So as far as what I do to be okay, it's really individualized. For me personally, it's having a dog. That's really been the thing that's saved my life. It forces me outside when I'm having a rough day and I don't feel okay. Having a dog, community, having friendships with other survivors, your well-intentioned non-survivor friends, they care about you, but they don't always know how to show up. Or maybe they don't even know how to try and so they just don't. Tara Newell, I can call her and talk to her about certain things I can't talk to anybody else about except other survivor friends. Having those relationships, those friendships are just super important. So it's having a dog, having community, self-care. When I'm having a rough day, I'll go get my hair or my nails done, which may seem trivial to some people. But for me, that's just an hour or two out of my day where I'm doing something relaxing, where I'm off my phone. I'm just doing something for me. Whatever that means for other people, I understand not everybody has the resources to do that. I run a free yoga for survivors. We do yoga together, which is just nice and relaxing. And then obviously, I think for me, and this isn't for everybody, but it's making what happened to me and what is happening to me not for nothing, which is contributing in this way that I can and helping other people. I will say that for those survivors who are listening that want to get involved in advocacy and activism, a mistake that I made was I started a little bit too early. I was a little bit too fresh in the fact that I had not reached anything resembling a place of safety. I was getting other people restraining orders while I was still trying to serve my stalker with mine. I'm glad that I did it because I could be helpful for other people. But I think you really can be humbled very easily where you're like, maybe I'm not as okay as I think I am. Now I'm so many years in that I am okay and I can do this work. But definitely part of my journey, if we're going to call it that, was giving it meaning and giving back in some way, trying to be for other people, the person that I needed when I was in that situation. The simplest thing is seek community because there are good people and we do as much as we can and collectively it makes a difference. And then when we're in these communities, you look at all the other survivors and you see what's working for them or what's not working for them, that you're not alone. These are all great people that bad shit happened to. I think community is important, especially with a crime like stalking, which is so isolating. That's exactly what the individual wants to do. They want to isolate you. And that's why I was so public with my wedding. I had this big, amazing wedding, and it was to show people, even after a whole lot of trauma, you can still find a healthy relationship that can still exist. I really try and do all the things, and I'm not always okay. I think just being honest about that and just going, well, today's a good day. I can do a lot. And on the days that I don't feel so great, I'll stay in and I'll watch a movie with my dog. And if that's what I need to do, that's what I need to do.
I'm so sorry for what you've gone through and what you continue to go through. I marvel even more all that you've managed to do despite. Thank you so much for everything that you have done and you continue to do for survivors and society. Same for you. Giving this platform is so important. It feels so overwhelming sometimes. We've all been screaming into the pillows over the system and how we're treated. But if we're all chipping away at it, it does matter. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. My mom said, Tracy has been abducted and our world just tipped upside down. We were thrust into a world, into a spotlight, into what really felt like the unfolding of a television series. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.